Please be seated. It's, uh, it's a great uh, privilege for me to uh, be able to share God's word from, from this particular uh, pulpit. And I was asked to give uh, a few words of introduction. Um, I, I studied here between, at the University of Nottingham between 94 and 98, and myself benefited so much from the teaching of this pulpit while I was a, a student and uh, attending here. I've been a missionary uh, ever since, uh, wonderfully supported by, by this church, and uh, we've been, our family's been in Ukraine since 2006. Before that, I was in, is in Russia. Before we open God's word, uh, let us bow our heads in prayer. Oh, Father God, we do thank you that you've spoken to us so clearly in your word. And you've promised, Father, that the, the humble, humble things such as preaching that perhaps seem in this day of ours so outdated do mighty things. And those are the things you use to transform our lives. And Father, our prayer tonight is that your spirit would accompany the preaching of your word. You'd help us to accept, to receive, understand your word, and help apply it to our lives. We ask this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Who is Jesus? And what does it mean to follow him? Now, our focus is going to be primarily both this evening and the next five weeks on the first question, but uh, at least in this introduction, I think Mark deals with the second. I think these two questions, who is Jesus and what does it mean to follow him, are possibly the two most important questions that any Christian can have the answer for, can, uh, can ask. Who is Jesus? And then that question leads to what does it mean to follow him? Or to use the sort of theological terms, Mark gives us here a Christology that informs our discipleship. And there's much that we can learn about these questions from, of course, from the entire Bible, including the Old Testament. But surely, there's no other place where we get such a clear and concise answer as here in the book of Mark. Mark's style is crisp. He gets to the point without wasting any words, and we see that in our passage here as well, where he's mostly telling us who Jesus is right up until verse 15. Now, again, please do keep the text in front of you. Um, I don't usually use uh, PowerPoint slides, so you're not going to be getting any this evening. Sorry about that. But I do encourage you to keep the text in front of you, whether it's in your phones or on your uh, pew Bibles. So verse 1, the beginning, uh, and I should, I need to apologize immediately. Uh, I realize that uh, despite uh, David's excellent uh, attempt to prepare me and the other preachers for this series, um, uh, my version of the NIV apparently is outdated, and uh, to my utter surprise, differs quite dramatically from the uh, more modern 2011 version that we've been using. But I think you're going to uh, hopefully be able to follow along nonetheless. Verse 1, the beginning of the gospel or the good news about Jesus Christ, or more literally off Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, we, we speak about the gospel of Mark because so many of the early church fathers tell us that he was the author. 
And remember, Mark spent a lot of time with the Apostle Peter, so he had all the information he needed about Jesus Christ. But Mark says at the beginning of his book that it's the beginning of the gospel, not of Mark, but of Jesus Christ. And doesn't that remind us that there there aren't really four gospels, but four versions of one and the very same gospel about Jesus Christ. Indeed, as Mark says, about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Who is Jesus? Well, Mark's answer comes right away in the very first sentence. In fact, I think we can view it as the title of this introductory passage. He is the Son of God. Now, what's this mean? When we hear the term Son of God, we may perhaps be tempted to think that he's someone less than God himself, someone close to God, but maybe a little bit other than God. And indeed, we we can find this interpretation at various points throughout church history, from the fourth century heretic Arius to the modern-day sect of the Jehovah's Witnesses. There have been some that have tried to argue this term, son of God, implies lesser than God. But the Christian church has been consistent and has always understood son of God to actually emphasize and reinforce the divinity of Christ. And this is explicit from the fourth century creeds onwards. The Nicene Creed of 381 reads, we believe in the one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all ages, light of light, very God of very God. Begotten, not made, consubstantial, the same, the very same essence, the very same substance with the Father. So listen carefully. The, the logic of Athanasius, one of the authors of the Creed, and the other fathers in the Nicene Creed is this. Just as a human son shares the same human nature as his father, so Christ, the Son of God, shares the very same divine nature as God the Father. It reinforces that as to the divine essence, God the Father and God the Son are identical. So again, when we hear Son of God, we are to think very God of very God. In verse 3, Mark quotes Isaiah 40, verse 3, prepare the way for the Lord. He refers this, of course, to Jesus. But this word Lord in Isaiah 43, if you look it up all in capitals, is none other than the special personal name that God gave to, to Moses, Yahweh. There could scarcely be a clearer statement by Mark than this that Jesus is God. He's saying here that Jesus is none other than Yahweh, the the God of the Old Testament. This is as unambiguous as it gets. Now, additionally, in verse 7, Mark reports that John the Baptist's words, uh, he reports John the Baptist's words that Jesus is mightier than him. 
and also that he's much worthier than him. Now, such a description would be, I think, hard to justify if Jesus were merely another man and not God as well. But Son of God tells us not only that Jesus shares the same divine essence or being of God, but also reminds us that he's the second of the three persons of the Trinity. Not merely as the one who would receive, verse 10, and bestow, sorry, uh, receive, verse 10, and bestow, verse 8, the Holy Spirit. But when we look at verses 10 to 11, with the baptism of Jesus, we see one of the clearest manifestations in all of Scripture of the Trinity. The Spirit descends upon the Son, and the Father declares His approval of the Son. Jesus is the Son of God, because Jesus is God the Son. Now, I don't know how many children are in the church this evening, not, not too many. Uh, but a couple of weeks ago, something happened, and at least some of your children or grandchildren may have been waiting for it for, for weeks, if not months. It was the last day of school. And I know my, my children were certainly waiting for it for a long time, although in Northern Ireland it, it comes a bit sooner. Some of our children like listening to music, and maybe some of us as well. And, 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 and sometimes when we have a favorite artist, uh, we can wait with such impatience for their new album to be released. Or maybe you've gone to the cinema and of course, they show you a trailer at the beginning of another film. And sometimes it looks really, really good. And then it says, coming soon, and you think, great. And then the next slide, the next screen says, next summer. And you realize it's still the middle of September. It's like, oh, no. Some of you maybe have a, plan, a holiday planned for August. Um, Hopefully, the weather is going to be better if you're doing it in the UK than, than in July. But some of you will have been really organized and maybe planned it as far back as last winter or even last spring, although in, in my case, the case of our family, the mind, the mind boggles. <laughs> quite planning quite that far uh, ahead. But you can't wait until the day finally comes and you finally head off for your break. Of course, we understand that in the scheme of things, the scheme of our whole lives, that such things as this, are not, they're not all that important. And yet we wait for them so eagerly, don't we? But Mark tells us here at the beginning of his gospel account something of first importance. Something, that's, something that is significant, not just for you and for me, but for the entire people of God throughout the entire history of their existence. Indeed, it's something that in a sense the whole of humanity has been waiting for from the time of Adam and Eve. We've been looking forward to it through the centuries and the millennia. What does Mark say? In verse 15, he quotes Jesus' words, the time is fulfilled. Now, that's the ESV. <laughs> uh, here in the NIV, the time has come. And this is in the context of John the Baptist who 
is in purview in almost every verse in this introductory section. John the Baptist, who as Mark reminds us in verse 2, was to prepare the way for God's messenger, who was to verse 3, prepare the way for the Lord, who verse 7, told of one coming after him, who was mightier than him, the forerunner, John the Baptist, predicted by the prophets that Mark quotes in verses 2 and 3. Malachi, writing over 400 years earlier, and Isaiah, writing over seven centuries before this time. But the predictions actually go, as we've already hinted at, all the way back to Genesis 3.15, when in response to the fall of man, God gives this first hint of a Savior to come, somebody who descended from the woman, Eve, but who, but who would crush the head of the serpent that is the devil. And now Jesus says in Mark 1.15, the time has come. The time has come. Jesus is the one that we've been waiting on. He's the long-anticipated one, the, the one that was predicted, promised, and prophesied all down through the ages. Compare the words of the Apostle Paul in the book of Galatians, and that was probably written at least a few years before the Gospel of Mark. Paul says in Galatians 4, 4 and 5, but when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under law that we might receive the full rights of sons. Some of us seem addicted to the news. And now we can get it, of course, almost immediately, instantly on our smartphones. And I often find myself scrolling or refreshing to get the latest information, especially from the front and uh, the front lines in Ukraine. But here, Mark, at the beginning of his book, brings us the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As most of you know well, this good news or important announcement are, are fair ways of rendering this word gospel that we find in verse 1. Good news. I think often we've, we've lost our excitement about this news. It's all too familiar. But this, this is the news of all time. This is the coming of the Messiah. Finally, the Savior, long awaited by His people, the time has come, Mark says, because Christ has come. That's real news. That's important, and that's really good news. But why is it good news? We've already spoken of the promises and prophecies fulfilled, but what makes this good news for you and for me? Well, Mark tells us a couple more things, which I think answer that. First of all, now that the time has come, now that the Messiah, the Christ has come, Jesus says here that the kingdom of God has come. Jesus' baptism here will start his, this period of formal public ministry of Jesus, and, and as we know, that will be to a very large degree a, a preaching ministry, as Mark indicates in verse 14. There we read, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. 
Jesus comes proclaiming the good news, the gospel. And what's the context of that gospel? Well, if you had to pick only one word, and if you, if you look through the four gospel accounts, you, you may well come to pick the word kingdom. And just as a very one, one example of many, Matthew 4, 23, Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom. And here, of course, again in Mark, verses 14 and 15. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come. The kingdom of God is near. Now, the Jews in that day expected that when the Messiah came, that he would bring the, he would bring in the kingdom of God, a time of bliss, of liberty, a new age. But what no one really expected back then was that the kingdom of God would actually come in two stages. The final fulfillment would actually, uh, sorry, the final fulfillment would remain in the future after Christ came a second time. So, for example, a verse that we know well from when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, Luke 22, verse 18, for I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. But you see, elsewhere we read in the Gospels, uh, for example, in Luke 11, verse 20, Jesus says, but if I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come to you. And here in Mark, Jesus says, the kingdom of God is near. Now, some would perhaps argue that Jesus is saying here in verse 15 that the kingdom is almost here. Perhaps it will really come at his resurrection, which is not too far in the future. But in Mark 14, verse 42, Jesus uses the same word, basically. It's exactly the same word. And there we, he says, rise, let us go. See, my betrayer is near. And then immediately, as he's still speaking, in the very next verse, Judas appears. So he's right there. And when we remember that Jesus said the time has come, I think there's very little reason to to think that Jesus is saying that the kingdom is coming soon rather than it is already here. So the kingdom's here, but not yet, of course, in all its fullness. Again, why is this good news? Well, we can't expand on this for for long, but I mean, it, it means the wonders of the kingdom of God have begun to be experienced by the people of God. The new heavens and the new earth are, as it were, already invading the present. And the kingdom has already come, though not yet in all its fullness, precisely because the king has come. Immediately after Jesus' baptism, verse 10, the heavens open up and the Holy Spirit descends upon him. This is the outset again of Jesus' ministry, his public ministry. And it seems to be his anointing as Messiah. In the Old Testament, not everyone was anointed. Who was anointed? Prophets, priests, and kings. And Jesus referred to in various places in the New Testament as as all of those things, as prophet, as priest, as king. Combining them together in one rule as Messiah or Christ. 
And again, those words are the, as we, as we well know, um, simply mean anointed, the anointed one. One in the Hebrew and Christ the, the Greek. And here at the River Jordan, Jesus is anointed for ministry. Now, there's one question that really we, we don't have a 100% clear answer to in, in the, from Mark or any of the other evangelists, and that says none of them really make it clear why Jesus is baptized by John. But again, most com- commentators suggest that by doing so, Jesus was identifying himself with the people he came to save. And, and so with those whom he would command his disciples to baptize, also seems quite probable that in this way Jesus was affirming the ministry of John the Baptist who preached the need for repentance. And perhaps he was also confirming this by this public deed that he was the one that John was pointing to. So who is this Jesus? According to this passage, as Jesus starts preaching the gospel to the people of Galilee in Mark 1.15, we see that his words include a command and this leads us to the second question we mentioned at the beginning, what does it mean to follow Jesus? Uh, again, look at verses 14 and 15. After he was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come. The kingdom of God is near. Repent. Repent and believe the good news. So they and you and I are to believe the gospel the good news, the good news that is about Christ and that is taught by him. We're to believe what the, words, what the word says about him, what the word says about who he is. So far, that is the son of God, the long-awaited one, the one who preaches the kingdom has come, the anointed Messiah. But what about the command? Repent. Of what? Well, of her sins for waywardness, for tendency to wander from the God who made us. Now, on the one hand, this is, this is always what God's people were to repent of. We see this in the, the Old Testament, too. Think of the book of Judges with that cycle of, those cycles of sin and then judgment and then people calling out for forgiveness and God delivering them. But please, look at verses 12 and 13. I think they're, they're quite noteworthy here. And this is Jesus in the wilderness or the desert. And I mean, it's, it's so short here in Mark's gospel, we really have to borrow from the other, the other versions. I mean, it's 11 ver- verses in, in Matthew and 13 in Luke. At once the Spirit sent him out into the desert, and he was in the desert for 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was in the desert or the wilderness for 40 days. And if we're sure that every word of Scripture is true and meaningful, if we know our Old Testament's reasonably well, then immediately those two words ring a bell. And we're reminded of another period of 40 in the desert or wilderness. Of how the Old Testament people of God wandered for 40 years in the desert, and in the end, only two of them entered the promised land. And from Numbers 14, we know that that was a punishment from God for the disbelief and the disobedience of His people. One year in the desert for every day the faithless spies had spent exploring the land. Their excuses and scaremongering after they came out were consistent, unfortunately, with the sinful grumbling of God's people even in the the years before. God had miraculously delivered them 
from burdensome slavery in Egypt. He destroyed their enemy. He guided them to freedom. He provided food for them daily. And yet, almost immediately, they started complaining. Where are we going? We don't like the food. We don't have enough food. The food was better in Egypt. And such was their disbelief and disobedience that even they even accused the God who'd saved them and a servant Moses of wanting to murder them in the desert. Isn't this a quite the picture of the dirty, dark, despicable deceit of sin? A reminder of the the evil that can mar the hearts of each one of us, even as the people of God, saved from slavery, called to paradise, even with God as our guide, the people of God, the Israelites, 40 years in the desert, saved by God and yet sinful, familiar with God and yet unfaithful. So when we meet 40 in the desert here in Mark, it isn't a coincidence. Once again, Jesus is identifying himself with his people. He's now in the desert as, a, as it were, the new Israel. Or perhaps the, the last Israelite, the, the remnant of Israel, whittled down to the very last one standing and faithful. So we meet 40. Uh, so verse, verse 13 continues. He's in the desert 40 days, but he was being tempted by Satan. But we know from Luke that he withstood that temptation, don't we? He was tested, but he remained faithful. He experienced all the same temptation as you and I, and yet he was faithful where we were not. Now, the second half of the book of Mark is all about the cross and what theologians call the passive obedience of Christ. He basically means that he, he suffered the penalty that belonged to us for our sin. But another important aspect of the righteousness of Christ that's imputed to believers in Christ is his act of obedience. He, he was tempted, and yet he sinned not even once. He kept the whole law perfectly for us. That's part of the good news of the gospel. We've been disobedient. But Jesus in verse 15 says, repent and believe the good news. You see the repentance and faith, this repentance and faith joins us to Christ himself, so that now in Christ, because of his faithfulness, God no longer sees us as disobedient, but he sees us part of the body of Christ, the faithful Israelite, who was tempted, but who kept the whole law. In Christ, he can look upon us, upon believers, as faithful. What amazing good news. And it's only possible because of the identity of Jesus Christ. Who is he? Well, over the next five years, you'll, the next five weeks, excuse me, you'll hear much more in the series from Mark chapters 1 to 3. But here we've seen that the wait is over. Jesus, the prophesied and long-awaited Messiah, we had confirmation that he's the divine son, and we learned that he's the faithful Israelite who stands for his people. Behold, brothers and sisters, friends, behold Jesus Christ, the long-promised Savior, the Messiah, 
He's come, and He's God the Son, and He's faithful when we were not. And as Jesus says, repent of trying to live apart from Him. And He says, believe this good news about me. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Oh, Father God, we, we thank You for such a salvation. We thank you for such a Savior. Lord, you haven't given us a system of salvation or rules or so on. You've given us a personal Savior in Jesus Christ. And Father, we, we pray that you would help us to appreciate all that he has done. We pray that you would help us to understand these things. And Father, we would pray that if we know and have recognized our own sin described in even in the people of God in this sermon, Lord, that you would also help us to recognize a Savior in Christ who can be grasped by faith. So, Lord, help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.